Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. You could be forgiven if you don't know whether there is oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska or not. The decision keeps going back and forth. The Biden administration just canceled oil drilling leases that President Trump initiated in 2021. We'll hear the arguments about the land that is both culturally and environmentally valuable and a place with a vast amount of crude oil. We'll also talk about another historic environmental protection proposal taking shape in California. That's all right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The husband of Alaska Congresswoman Mary Peltola died after a plane crash on Tuesday. He was 57. As KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports, Jean Buzzy Peltola is being remembered as both a supportive husband and a leader in his own right. When Mary Peltola ran for Congress, her husband, Buzzy Peltola, was often behind the scenes, beaming proudly. And as she took her oath of office to become the first Alaska Native woman to serve in Congress, he stood beside her wearing a traditional Native cuspic holding the Bible. For many Alaskans, the couple seemed to embody Peltola's campaign slogan, Fish, Freedom, and Family, an image that shattered when he was flying solo in a small plane that crashed into a mountain near St. Mary's on the Yukon River, part of a vast region he knew well in more than three decades of work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Bethel. Eventually, he became the first Alaska native to manage the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge and later served as the Alaska Regional Director for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Throughout his public service career, there was a common thread. Peltola's passion for hunting, fishing, and giving Alaska Natives more say in how fish and wildlife are managed. A passion he shared with Lamont Albertson, one of the founders of the Kuskokwim River Intertribal Fish Commission. It's just so hard to find the words to describe his intelligence and how intuitive the guy was. He was assertive and he knew how to say the right things at the right time. Albertson, who will soon turn 80, has known both Mary and Buzzy Peltola since they were kids, but says he'll cherish a recent memory forever. After suffering a stroke, they sent him a care package with subsistence foods to help him recover. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. It's National Suicide Prevention Week, and new data shows the suicide rate in the U.S. has increased dramatically over the past 20 years. As the Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Bradle reports, that's especially true for Native Americans and Alaska Natives. The analysis was done by Pew Charitable Trusts. It found that from 2000 to 2020, the national suicide rate grew 30 percent. For Native American and Alaska Native women, the rate spiked more than 130 percent. For men, it jumped over 90 percent. Emily Edmonds-Harrows is with the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. She says a major factor is the historical trauma caused by colonization and the boarding school era. If a parent is traumatized because of these experiences and, and experiences those things and not allowed to talk about it, not allowed to cope with it, they then pass along that trauma to their children and sort of this cycle perpetuates itself. 
She says there's also a lack of funding for mental health care services in tribal communities. But efforts to bridge the gap are coming from the Indian Health Service, which is training tribal members to respond to people in crisis. For National Native News, I'm Caleb Radel. Artists Keith Braveheart and Marty Tubles Jr. have been named as the Oglala Sioux Tribe's 2023-24 Artists Laureates in the role the pair will serve as cultural ambassadors for the tribe, support artistic endeavors on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and enrich their communities through their works. They both work as educators in addition to their art, serving as art professors at Oglala Lakota College. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at aarp.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America calling. The Biden administration just canceled gas and oil leases for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. In announcing the action, Interior Secretary Deb Holland told reporters no one will have rights to drill oil in what she calls one of the most sensitive landscapes on Earth. The decision reverses developmental drilling granted by the Trump administration in 2021. There are passionate arguments from tribes, Alaska Native corporations, organizations, and individuals on both sides of the issue. In addition to its natural and cultural value, including serving as the calving grounds of two large herds of caribou, Anwar sits atop some 10 billion barrels of crude oil, according to an estimate by the U.S. Geological Survey. The recent cancellation of the leases is not likely the last word on the future of conservation and development in the 19.2 million acre wildlife refuge. Later, we'll also learn about a historic marine sanctuary proposal moving forward in California. Let us know your thoughts on what's happening on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge by calling 1-800-996-2848. We'd love to get some calls going early here on our show today. 1-800-996-2848, that's the number again, and our phone lines are open. Joining us now from Fairbanks, Alaska, is Charlene Stern. She is the technical advisor for the Arctic Village Council, the Vinitai Village Council, and the Native Village of Vinitai Tribal Government. She's an enrolled member of the Native Village of Vinitai. Charlene, hello, and welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you, and good morning, and thanks for having us on the show. Absolutely. Also in Alaska, in Anchorage, we have Andy Motoro. 
He is the Senior Director of Policy at the Alaska Wilderness League. Good morning, Andy. How are you doing? Great. Great to be here. Wonderful. Joining us from California is Violet Sage Walker. She is the chairwoman of the Northern Chumash Tribal Council. Chairwoman Walker, welcome to you as well here on Native America Calling. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And joining us also in California is Mia Lopez. She's an advisor for the Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary and a former chairwoman of the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation. Mia, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you so much for having us here. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and start today's conversation focusing specifically on what's happening up in Alaska. And Charlene, let's begin with you. How secure, in your viewpoint, uh, is this uh, cancellation of these leases in terms of holding off oil drilling in a place that is so vitally important to so many people? Yeah, thank you. Um, I would say that our tribes are absolutely um, thankful and grateful to the Biden administration. Um, we see this as a step in the right direction. It's very encouraging in terms of both the legal action that was taken, but also just the recognition and awareness of the importance of this place, not just to the Gwich'in, but really to all of humanity. Um, their awareness that this is a very sensitive uh, ecosystem that needs protection is um, very, very encouraging, and it's certainly a change from the last administration's viewpoint. Um, I would say, however, though, that uh, secure permanent protection for this place is going to require additional action as we move forward. And currently, um, we are, as our tribes have been participating in the supplemental environmental impact statement process. Um, and so that's our immediate focus right now. So more work to be done. Right. And also along those lines, I know that the Biden administration has said it will comply with the law which requires additional upcoming lease sales. So how is that going to all play out? Because at some point they are going to have to permit some leasing somewhere there in that region. And how do you anticipate that? Well, I think we have to cross that bridge when we get there. Um, but I will say that our the Gwich'in um, have always been predominantly concerned with the birthplace calving and post-calving grounds of the porcupine caribou herd. And so um, that is the, the area that we're most concerned with. However, we realize, um, being the traditional stewards of this resource, that all of the habitat surrounding the um, porcupine caribou, the ecosystem, the water, the lands, the plants, they all have a cumulative impact on the health of the herd. And so anytime there's any development um, in adjacent areas is uh, cause for concern. So, you know, I think we're, we're going to kind of play with a wait and see. Um, we are encouraged, though, by the last lease sale, just the lack of um, disinterest or the lack of interest from um, many oil and gas companies and the banks that tend to finance them. Um, they just weren't interested in bidding at all. And so the majority of the leases did go to ADA, um, which is a state uh, run agency. Okay. And do you think those oil companies, do you think they're doing that because uh, they're aware of the environmental hazards? Or do you think they're just worried about some of this political instability? Because I think one of the things that, that's, that's so interesting here and what has people concerned is, so the Trump administration approved these leases, and now the Biden administration is canceling them. So it just seems like it kind of just goes back and forth, depending on whoever has control in Washington. So 
any way to kind of put some stability into these issues long term? Well, I think that the lack of interest is from a number of reasons. I, I mean, I, I don't know that you can point to any singular one. I think certainly banks um, have become more aware and taken a stronger position against financing some of these activities in this sensitive area. I think there's also other areas um, of interest for these companies to explore, whether domestic or international. Um, we have the National Petroleum Reserve right there, which, um, you know, the development is already authorized in some of that. And so I, I just think that um, all of those options, including the, the rising and falling price of oil, has an impact on the level of interest of these companies. Um, and so, you know, how can we make this more predictable? I, I think permanent protection is really the, the only way um, long term. The Gwich'in have been in this fight since the 80s, and we have seen different political parties come and go. Um, and some are more favor favorable to, um, to put more protections than others aren't. And um, it's just, it's an ebb and flow for us, but we're in it until until the end to make sure that this area gets the permanent protection it deserves. In it till the end, uh, and since the 80s, so you folks uh, have a lot of years invested in in this fight here. And Charlene, uh, what can you say about the additional protections of 13 million acres uh, on the National Petroleum Reserve? Is that also an area where the Gwich'in people are invested? So that area is actually pretty far from our traditional homelands, but like I mentioned, you know, the porcupine caribou herd are a migratory herd, and we're concerned not just with them, but with the other wildlife um, in the Arctic that are all interconnected in some way or another. And so, you know, um, our immediate priority is the 1002 area of the Arctic refuge, but I think that we see any acknowledgement to protect sensitive ecosystems as um, important, not just for our tribes, but really for all Alaskans and all of the nation. Okay. And that's important, Charlene, because if, if, speaking of just, you know, the average Alaskan, because of course, you know, there's folks on one side that are concerned with the environmental aspects, they're concerned with the caribou herds you're talking about. And then there are other folks saying, hey, look, there's jobs, there's economic development at stake with uh, the oil and gas industry. So what do you think in terms of the average Alaskan person there in the state, which way do they lean on this issue? I think that's really hard to say. I think that um, we have a mixture, and I, I certainly understand the pressures of um, the state economy and how dependent it has been historically on oil and gas. Um, our position has always been that there are areas that are designated for some of those activities, um, but we also support the diversifying of um, economic sources of revenue for our state in other forms besides oil and gas. So I think you have to take a balanced approach, and I do think that we have people that fall on all spectrums of the issue within our state. Okay. And I, I know that Alaska's entire congressional delegation, including Mary Peltola, who's a Democrat, they've spoken out against the Biden administration action. Are you concerned at all that going forward, you won't have the support of key policymakers? Um, you know, in terms of the Gwich'in, we work very closely with members of our delegation on all issues, whether public safety or housing or public health. And so, you know, we have a vested interest in keeping those relations um, very positive. It's This is nothing new um, in terms of the Alaska delegation um, position on the Arctic Refuge. This, this is um, 
what we faced in the past. And it's just a reality um, with the pressures that they're under, too, with supporting economic development in the state. So we understand that. Right, right. Andy, I, I want to bring you into the conversation now. We're going to have to take a break in about another minute and a half. But uh, what else do our listeners need to be aware of with regard to this recent development up there in the Anwar with these uh, canceled oil and gas leases? Yeah, this has been a great conversation to date. And turning a little to the West, as mentioned, there was also action by the Biden administration in the National Petroleum Reserve um, that was looking to protect 13 million acres and some of the incredible biodiversity, cultural, historical areas that have been identified as special and containing unique values. So that was another component of the president and Secretary Holland's action. Uh, last week that we're really grateful to see um, because Alaska and this landscape is one of the last places in the nation where traditions that rely on land-based land mammal migrations can exist um, and and do so in places without industrialization. So uh, also grateful for that action by the president. All right. Thanks for chiming in there, Andy. We are going to have to take uh, our first break on the show today, but really do encourage folks to call in uh, if you've got any thoughts on uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and this recent action to cancel oil and gas leases. Sure like to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your perspective. Maybe you're on the side of environmental concerns, or maybe you are concerned about the economic costs that could be at stake. Either way, we welcome all opinions, all mindsets, all perspectives, as long as they are respectful on the air. So give us a call. What are you waiting for? 1-800-996-2848. And Alaska listeners, I'm talking to you because we really would like to hear some folks in Alaska and their thoughts and ideas on this issue. Give us a call. Futurism includes a wide range of artwork, literature, and other media focused on imagining what's in store. A new native-run gallery in Chicago is zeroing in on futurism as a jumping-off point for artwork, creative discussions, and a sustainable nonprofit enterprise. We'll hear more about it on the next Native America Calling. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Biden administration just announced its decision to cancel oil and gas leases on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. What do you think of this decision? Are you happy about what it might mean for the environment? Or do you support oil drilling in Anwar, which could bring jobs and economic development to the region? Let us know. 1-800-996-2848. Today we'll also hear about the Northern Chumash Tribe's efforts to protect a huge swath of California coastal waters by establishing a marine sanctuary. Next conversation is going to come up a little bit later in the show. Join us now by calling 1-800-996-2848 with your questions and comments. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On our show, we have Charlene Stern up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and we have Andy Motoro 
who is in Anchorage, and Andy is with the Alaska Wilderness League. And Andy, I, I've heard it said that uh, a lot of folks in in the climate movement really see Alaska as as the ground zero of so much of this effort and so pivotal. And I want to ask you, you know, this land we're talking about there in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, along with the 13 million acres of land in the National Petroleum Reserve, how critical are those lands and how critical is this specific fight with regard to the overall climate change battle that's just waging so, so ferociously all across the United States and in the world for that matter right now? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And when you look at Alaska, it's a land of extremes, right? Uh, And that includes the weather. And we've seen in recent years uh, warming two to four times faster than the rest of the country in Alaska's Arctic. That's what the latest science has been telling us. Um, And there's been changes on the ground. When you talk to folks who've spent a lot of time out on the land, they've seen changes to the wildlife and the, 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 the resources that are harvested for sustenance in Alaska. Uh, so at the same time, you know, as this crisis, uh, the climate crisis evolves and, and grows around the country, you also have in Alaska um, a potential solution from the supply side of the problem, um, from the oil and gas part of the equation. Um, so what we see in these actions by the president is taking action to address climate in a landscape dramatically affected by climate today. And that makes Alaska a great place to, to take such, such action. Um, you know, we were really heartened by the president's Inflation and Reduction Act passing and taking action to try to curb some of the demand for fossil fuels. But it needs to be coupled with things like we've seen from the Biden administration in the Arctic. Um, and there's still more to come. By no means are we going to solve the climate crisis one landscape at a time. Um, but this is a major step in the right direction. All right, let's go to the phones now. We've got Jay, who is listening on station KMHA, he's uh, from the Mandan Harikara Adatsa, three affiliated tribes nation in North Dakota. Hello, Jay. Thanks for calling in today. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me on board, and uh, thanks for everyone who joined the discussion. I just had a comment. Uh, I do believe that it's always a good thing for the environment for you know such things to not proceed. But it's not so good good for the economy. Um, I figure that once development starts going through, you have that speculation of uh, expanding that those projects, maybe pipelines, which in the past have been um, part of a de- debate, more, more or less a protest, and you know that also could be an obstacle too for you know the development of uh, oil and gases up there, but. Uh, you know, for now, I think it's a good thing, depending on the weather, because as we know now, a lot of fires are raging in Canada, and a lot of us uh, in, the, in the states here are really seeing the effects. So it is real, and not to mention the the the, the fisheries up there were canceled because of the the warming of the waters. You know, two and a half million, two and a half billion uh, are gone. So you know, mm. my my question is. Um, how how much longer can the state uphold these restrictions? That's a really good question, Jay, and I appreciate you calling in. Uh, you're from up there in uh, North Dakota, and it's a good call because Jay, I know where you're you're at. There's a lot of oil drilling there on uh, 
Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara tribal lands, three affiliated tribes, big, big booming oil industry. So you certainly understand what's at stake here on this issue. And I'm going to go ahead and let uh, Andy respond to that question. You know, Jay asks, how long can they hold these folks at bay? You know, with so many uh, economic uh, factors at stake here, he mentions the fish and other issues. Andy, uh, going forward, how can this stuff stick long term to make the environment and the world a, a safer, healthier place? Yeah, it's a fantastic question that acknowledges the complexity to the issue, right? And we need to do that when we talk about it. Um, you mentioned the fish, and a couple years ago in Alaska, uh, there was a story that it, the headline read like it was made up, right? But it was fish having heart attacks um, in Alaska waters, and it was due to the temperature of our rivers going too high um, as a result in part of climate change. And so that was a terrifying headline to read. Um, and it's an example of why bold climate action is necessary. Uh, at the same time, there are economic pressures, right, to develop oil and gas. But I think when you look at what um, Charlene mentioned earlier, you know, all major U.S. banks are saying no to Arctic refuge drilling. More and more insurance companies are saying this is not a wise investment and something they're not willing to consider backing. Uh, you also look at how Alaska has been in decline in oil production since 1989. Uh, you know, you, there's not really a future in our economy by digging down and trying to double down on the economy of the past. It's time to look forward, and it's time to look forward in a way that will keep our waters full of fish and that will keep our economy vibrant in the future. Um, that's what leaders need to be doing today. And I think it's going to become more and more clear that there's alternate paths forward for the state in the years to come. So I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic we'll get there. All right, Andy, let's take another caller now. Sean, who is listening in Rapid City, South Dakota, on Keeley. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I appreciate your name, Sean. Thank you. What's yeah, on your mind, Sean? Just, I think we've, we've, done it. we've done enough drillings, and most of the stuff that they do drill, when they do drill the wells, they cap them off and just hold on to that stuff anyway, so. We need to start thinking more about the future of our children and less about the pocketbooks of the rich there. So that's just my only comment. All right, Sean, really appreciate that call. Uh, coming in from Rapid City, South Dakota. And Sean says, hey, you know, it's the future. Our children, their lives are at stake. Our, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. And uh, Charlene, I want to go back to you here because, again, it's all about the future, right, and, and what this means not even in five or 10 years, but what it means in 50 years or 100 years or 200 years. And is that how you're thinking about this issue, big picture, you and other folks that are involved in these efforts? Absolutely. The Gwich'in have always had that long-range perspective. We are the traditional stewards of this landscape that the Creator gave us, including the caribou. And our people have managed this herd for thousands of generations. We know the patterns inside and out. We know the biology of, of the animals. Um, and we've been effective of that. Now, in more recent times, of course, we've had, you know, challenges with development. We've had other users, other landowners. And so the, the stewardship has gotten more complex over time. But we've always been in this because it's a responsibility that we've inherited from our people that came before us, but it's also a responsibility that we carry for future generations. And I can tell you, Sean, I just got back from my home community of Arctic Village, and 
we were out there on the land watching the caribou herds um, migrate by and seeing those little calves follow their moms across a landscape on a path that they have, you know, um, used for thousands of generations. Like that's what it's about. And it's about our children having the same relationship with the caribou that I've had in my lifetime and my forefathers had in their lifetime. That's what this is about. It's not about right now. It's not about, you know, my contribution. It's, it's not about any one of us. It's about the future. And Charlene, you mentioned uh, how the Gwich'in people have been stewards of those lands up there for for many, many, many years. And another big component of these efforts by the Biden administration is to make a formal acknowledgement of Indigenous knowledge and to really work with tribal communities and Native people with regard to long-term solutions. And and how hopeful are you that those policies are going to continue this this respect and acknowledgement of indigenous knowledge on, on deeply scientific matters such as this? I think that's the future. I think that, you know, in, in the last couple policy documents, our tribes have participated in the processes um, on in government-to-government meetings as cooperating agencies to ensure that our knowledge is brought forward into those documents. And that's been a real challenge because these EIS documents tend to very much favor Western science. And we know that that only takes us so far that indigenous knowledge is also, you know, at parity in terms of of value. And and it's been a real struggle to be able to infuse and braid those knowledge systems together. But that is something that we are interested in, along with long-term co-management of these resources. We have examples in Alaska where tribes have effectively um, co-managed different resources. And, and so that, to me, is the future. All right. And Andy, before we move on to California, I want to ask you folks there at the Alaska um, Wilderness Conservation there, how, folk, how active are you folks in, in soliciting and engaging with Indigenous knowledge in, in making decisions on, on your front? Thank you for the time today. You know, it's been an honor to follow the lead of the Gwich'in Nation in the fight to protect the Arctic Refuge over the decades for this organization and working with tribes and communities and members from communities to come back to have decision makers hear firsthand what is at stake um, in these fights is one of the highlights of, of this job. Um, we are also very grateful to see a commitment from the Biden-Harris administration to explore co-management and to try to more meaningfully connect with tribal governments. And there's still a lot of work to be done, um, but we're hopeful that we can see progress and, and get beyond what we saw during the Trump era, which was not strong. Um, to better connect lands uh, with historical and current uses that are, make Alaska such a great place to live. So, um, yeah, we're grateful for the leadership of the Gwich'in Nation in this fight and um, proud to follow their lead. Well, Andy and uh, Charlene, really appreciate you both joining us. And, and do us a favor and stay on the line for a few minutes because we still might get some calls with people who have questions and comments regarding uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge there in Alaska. The number 1-800-996-2848. That is the number to call. Alaska, I'm talking to you. If you've got questions or comments, 1-800-996-2848. And with that, let's head south now to California. And we have Tribal Chairwoman Violet Sage Walker. She's with the Northern Chumash Tribal Council. And Chairwoman, thank you again for joining us here on Native America Calling 
uh, today, and we're talking about this National Marine Sanctuary that is in the works. Tell us a little bit more. How were the boundaries of this sanctuary planned and mapped out? Sure. Um, thanks. It's a um, great question because California is very unique in the fact that we have almost um, completely protected 19,000 square miles of coastline and ocean from Northern California all the way to the Channel Islands, which is in the Santa Barbara area. There was one gap, an area we call um, of uh, unprotected coastline, which was um, the proposed Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary. And that was 156 miles of coastline and about 7,000 square miles of ocean. That gap had approximately 37 untapped oil leases, um, which, you know, is what we're kind of talking to you about in Alaska. This is a um, oil rich area. It's the um, home of one of the biggest at the time, the 1969 oil spill and subsequent oil spills. And also um, the eyes were on this area for future seismic testing. Um, and offshore wind, which brings its own uh, set of problems too to the um, preservation of this um, historic area. So these 37 untapped oil leases, uh, what happens now with this sanctuary that's planned? So the last administration um, opened back up the offshore oil leases. Um, this administration obviously has different priorities um, but the marine sanctuary would be lasting permanent protection from new, newly developing any offshore oil in this area. So um, it's one way that we have um, secure protection for the future, regardless of the administration change. And Chairwoman Walker, tell us a little bit more about the geography of the land there. For somebody who might not be familiar with that area, what does it look like? What is the the water along that area, uh, the Pacific Ocean? What's that water like? Uh, give us some some visuals. Okay, so um, the the easiest thing to imagine is um, an area that's designated for National Marine Sanctuary Protection as an area of heightened in, um, importance. It's the area of Middle California where the southern currents meet the the, um, the northern currents. So you have warm water species and cold water species meeting here at the east-west land bridge, which is Point Conception. Point Conception is an area of great importance to our people. We call it um, the Western Gate, where we believe, you know, all people exit this life into the next journey. And so it's an area. It's a sacred site. It's an area that we've protected for generations. And um, going back into the, the 60s and 70s, we protected the area from the liquefied natural gas plant. And now there's um, new and emerging um, uh, threats to the area. But um, going from the north, you have places like um, Cambria. You have um, our sacred rock, uh, Morro Rock, the Isamio and Morro Bay. You have the entire, the majority of the southern protected sea otters that live here. Um, they were once almost completely extinct, and now their population is back to over 3,000 individuals, and most of them live in this area. You have the um, humpback whale migration through uh, from Hawaii and Mexico going up the coast of California and further north. Um, you have all the um, high-value commercial fish 
salmon, halibut, um, you name it, we have it here. We have some of the best um, rockfish in the world, and we also have the migratory sea turtles. So we have everything, um, including the endangered leatherback sea turtles coming through here. So it's an area rich in biodiversity and um, worthy of heightened protection. Um, just you know, to be brief about it. <laughs> well, it sounds like just an absolutely uh, divine area there, and it would make sense that the Chumash people hold that area, those lands and those waters in such high regard and, and have prospered there for so many thousands of years, right? Because it was such a, a, a wonderful area to live. Um, yeah, the best. I mean, we have, you know, everything from lobster to halibut, you name it, all your favorite seafood is here. Um, we have the best weather, you know, if you want to be at the beach and have 70 degree weather all year round. Um, but, you know, we are affecting, um, right. feeling the effects of climate change. We're going to have to take a short break. Uh, I'm sorry about that, Chairwoman. We'll come back. We'll talk some more. Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right. When you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the proposed Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary along 160 miles of California's coastline. It would be the first tribal marine sanctuary. Is your tribe working to protect water resources and habitats? If so, we'd sure like to hear about it. Our number at the studio is 1-800-996-2848. Or if you're in California and you're familiar with this stretch of coastline there, uh, on which the proposed Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary will exist, give us a call. We'd really like to hear your thoughts and your comments, too. 1-800-996-2848. And on the line right now, we have Tribal Chairwoman Violet Sage Walker with the Northern Chumash Tribal Council. And Chairwoman Walker... Um, right now, of course, this is a proposed sanctuary, and there is a 60-day listening session that is ongoing. What are folks talking about in that listening session right now? What's at stake? Sure. Thanks for asking. That's the, probably the most important comment is that um, we are asking people to weigh in. This is the first tribally led nomination ever, and... It's really important that we focus on this collaborative management of our ocean space. And this will be able to set examples for other marine protected areas and other marine sanctuaries like the Hawaiian Papahanaunukea or the Hawaiian Humpback Whales National Marine Sanctuary. Um, they are trying to convert from national monuments to national marine sanctuaries so that they're more fully protected. So this is an example of how um, the agency um, and specifically NOAA can um, um, include all tribes at the table and include tribes in a more meaningful way than just, um, and let's face it, any tribal groups know that advisory councils sometimes are just uh, lip service. So we wanna be included in a way that's more meaningful and a way that is more permanent and lasting. 
and um, this will be the first time it's done. So it's really exciting. And Chairwoman Walker talking about Alaska earlier and, and, and of course, uh, economic development interests pushing back against the proposed uh, canceled leases or the, the canceled leases up there on the, in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So what kind of pushback are you folks getting there with regard to the proposed marine sanctuary? Is there anybody pushing yeah, hard a, against it? It's an, yeah, it's an interesting question because you could just substitute our name for everything you talked about in Alaska. We're getting the same exact, you know, concerns, the same pushback. Um, right now, um, we are facing some of the biggest offshore wind leases in the United States. We don't know what the effect of offshore wind will be on our migratory animals and our whales and our fish. Um, we are asking that they, um, you know, slow down, make thoughtful, and um, uh go under the same environmental review process as would other um, industrialized um, uses of the ocean like, you know, offshore oil did or anything else that people do. We are asking that offshore wind have the same type of accountability and responsibility. And so we're finding that the pushback is actually from green renewable energy. Um, they have actually carved out a um, 1,700 square mile swath of the sanctuary for cabling and transmission lines. And so it's very concerning. We're asking for the largest boundary and we're asking for this to be um, contiguous so that the boundaries are not um, interrupted by this 1700 mile zone of industrialization. that could be anything from offshore wind cabling to offshore oil to deep sea mining. We actually don't know at this point um, you know, what could happen in that corridor. And it's very unclear that um, offshore wind should be, you know, influencing an additional 1,700 square miles of ocean when they only lease 300 square miles. Wow. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> fascinating conversation here on Native America Calling. 1-800-99-NATIVE, the number to call with your questions and comments. And Chairwoman Walker, so what happens after the listening session? Uh, how do you folks move this forward? Well, after the 60-day public comment, um, stakeholders and the public will be, they'll be taking um, you know, time to review all the comments. Um, we are hoping to hear um, that the nomination has been finalized before um, next summer. And so um, the proposed nomination now, the preferred boundaries with that 1,700 square miles I told you about excluded, um, I do believe will go forward. Um, but right now we have 60 days to make public comment and we are gonna ask for the full boundary. Um, we're gonna ask for com the most complete protection for this area possible and for our sacred sites like Morro Rock and Morro Bay. Um, really important to our people and to international indigenous communities. People travel here for ceremony and um, it's like one of the seven wonders of the world coming here to Morro Bay and Morro Rock area. So um, we're hoping um, to get enough public comment and uh, next Wednesday on the 20th, we'll be holding a rally around Morro Rock to um, sign a resolution and um, to designate it as an area of cultural significance and need a heightened protection. So we have a lot planned for the next 60 days. 
Okay. All right. Uh, one more question before we go on to, to Mia, Chairwoman. And I know that the proposal is named after the Chumash tribe, and you folks have been working with federal officials to get this off the ground. And there is some question around recognition for your tribe and its relationship with other uh, Chumash tribes there in the region. And how are you dealing with that? And how can you work with these other tribes in the process? Well, um, the proposal was named um, Chumash Heritage by my father. And, um, you know, the land from Big Sur down to um, Malibu is originally Chumash land, although other people and other folks from all different ethnicities now live here. And so what we have always said is that um, everybody should be included and treated equally. Federally recognized tribes, state recognized tribes, all the bands of Chumash should be included um, with NOAA and with um, a like sanctuary advisory council for tribes and treated equally. And um, the person that wins is the ocean. The more people that want to participate in protecting the ocean, the better it is for the ocean. So. I think all people should be able to um, facilitate whatever kinds of science and research and programs that they want to do, and the winner is going to be the ocean in the end. Well, thank you, Chairwoman. Let's go ahead and move on now to Mia Lopez, who is an advisor for the Chumash Heritage National Marine Council, or actually National Marine Sanctuary, I'm sorry, and she's a former chairwoman of the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation. And, and Mia, again, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your patience. And uh, can you elaborate a little more on what Chairwoman Walker just said and explain a little bit more about the relationship between these different Chumash tribes and the sanctuary area? Because we're talking about a number of different tribes in this area, right? Exactly. We have, so it's a huge um, amount of coastal territory um, as well as inland territory are tribal um our tribal boundaries that go from ragged point um at big sur all the way down to the malibu topanga area and back into um bakersfield's fresno area so that's a, a really long um plot of land um and coastally that's a all right, going to go back to Chairwoman Walker now. And Chairwoman Walker, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about the, the recognition status there because I, I think a lot of our listeners will have questions. And do you see any potential conflicts with regard to, to your tribe having this consultation with the feds because you lack the federal recognition status? I mean, just from a legal perspective, you did a really good job of explaining just the cultural significance of what's at stake. But there are some folks that are going to say, but look, they're not fairly recognized. They're not the tribe to be having these negotiations. What's your thought on that? Well, um, I think that we go, you know, we could go back to why we're not federally recognized. And that is of no fault of our own. If you know the history of California and the, the 18 unratified treaties for coastal people, um, you know, we are not fairly recognized because of the federal government, and then they're saying we can't consult with you because you're not fairly recognized. So I don't really buy that argument, and I think that um, most people, you know, that have international experience with international indigenous tribes would not fall into that category either because Hawaiian people and, you know, Pacific Islanders and people all around the world who don't have federal recognition are still indigenous people worthy of, you know, respect and dignity and, you know, their time and inclusion. 
So as I've traveled around the world, you know, I've been exposed to people's um, plights and a lot of people experience the same problems that we're talking about right now. And so we are the nominators. We are not a federally recognized tribe. We have done all the work behind getting the sanctuary nominated and getting the support. And so, um, you know, we are asking for people to be treated equally with dignity and respect. Thank you, Chairwoman. Appreciate that. And uh, let's go back now to Mia. Uh, lost you there for just a moment, Mia, but uh, you were in mid-sentence. Go ahead and, and continue uh, your dialogue there so we can get our listeners up to date. Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. Yeah, um, so, you know, uh, our boundaries, Ragged Point to Topanga Malibu, back into Bakersfield, Fresno, it's a large amount of land. Um, we have within that land several, several tribes, clans, bands, family uh, groups of Chumash people. Um, and, of course, from, you know, the southern tip of San Francisco down to the end of California, there are no um, federal all right, I'm going to go back to Chairwoman Walker. And uh, Chairwoman Walker, um, tell us a little bit more about some of the other folks that are involved here um, with the, the push for the sanctuary. In addition to the tribes, are you working with any nonprofits or any other coalitions that have a stake in the issue? Sure. And, um, you know, I, I know we had talked a little bit about um, the tribes, but I just want to be clear, like, our supporters come from around the whole world. Like, um, you know, the other tribes, you know, initially, um, you know, had reservations about having federal agencies um, involved in our in our ocean management. So I think a lot of indigenous people do have reservations about that. And um, most of our supporters have been uh, other nonprofits. So, um, and conservation groups and ocean protection groups all around the globe. So um, it's um, not a perfect uh, system by any means, but um, it's the best protection that we have currently available for the ocean. And so I always have to think about what I, you know, what I want. And really it's not about me or, you know, who's running the sanctuary. It's, you know, it's about the future and this is the best protection for our future and for the, you know, the children to be able to experience what we've experienced. So if we take ourselves out of the equation, because we won't be here, you know, in 30 or 40 years when offshore oil and offshore wind and all this stuff is going on, we're hoping that this is the lasting protection for the animals and the, the ocean. All right. And another important point to make here is that in this case, with this proposed National Marine Sanctuary, we're talking about both landscapes and also oceanscapes as well. And I want to go back to Mia and Mia ask you, um, those are two very different types of land. And how are you folks working uh, forward with regard to to co-managing and just all the other issues that are going to be at play with these vastly different landscapes that uh, are all under consideration here. Right. Well, you know, of course, uh, the sanctuary is going to be protecting um, the ocean part of that. Um, but with the protection of the ocean, it includes the shoreline. 
whether people think so or not, it does include that because it provides to the health of what's happening on the coastline. Um, but also, um, as Violet had talked about our sacred um, sacred spaces, um, it's also a, a sacred viewshed. Um, you know, and I try to help people understand that by, you know, you can go to church um, and it's fine, but if you go to church one day and there's a trash can um, at the top of the pulpit, um, how do you pray there? How do you have ceremony there? How do you do that? Um, and so when things get put within on the ocean within that sacred viewshed, um, that hinders our ability to practice our religious um, ceremonies and things like that. And so this is also something that we want to protect um, besides the seascape, the landscape, but the viewscape, um, the cultural viewshed. And so all of these things uh, will be, you know, benefited by this uh, National Marine Sanctuary. And I'm really looking forward to all of that protection. And Mia, one more question before we wrap up the show. Uh, what are you hearing there at the community level from, from just members of different Chumash tribes? What are they saying? What are they most excited about? Well, that's exactly why um, I I appreciate being um, advisor for, for Violet, um, for Sharon and Walker. Um, to me, it's a show of our solidarity of um, supporting all of our tribal people, because as Violet said, this is not about one uh, group or another. It's about protecting this ocean that's important for all of us. And I think that everybody um, is excited about being visible, but that we will have the opportunity to protect our oceans in such a big way. Um, here in Santa Barbara, I am looking forward to um, being able to connect um, our tribal territory by water all the way from the Morro Bay Sanctuary all the way down to the Channel Islands uh, right. National Marine Sanctuary, which connects Mia, us I, I'm all. sorry we're going to have to wrap up the show, but I really appreciate you joining us as well as Chairwoman Walker. Uh, great conversation there with regard to this proposed Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary. So big thanks to all of our guests today on Native America Calling. We're going to wrap up now. Join us again tomorrow. We're going to be talking about Native futurism, and we're going to hear from organizers of a new urban gallery. Hope you'll tune in. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. The SBA, first and foremost, has truly made me a better entrepreneur. It's empowered me with the skills of understanding how to really run my business better, more efficiently, how to market and grow my company. It was probably the best thing I did for my business. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Support provided by Amerind. 
Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.